Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. Today's episode is going to suck, and that's because the topic is vampires. But speaking of things that do not suck, I've got my friend and co-host, Chad. How's it going, Chad? Well, you know, Al, to be honest with you, I'm kind of craving something. Something with a high iron count. Um, you know, Iron Maiden? You, you know, if you want something with a lot of iron count, you could listen to, uh, you know, the Iron Maiden. They've got plenty of albums out. Okay, I'm going to throw something out there you're probably not familiar with. Are you familiar with a, a heavy metal group called Kasabian? I am not, no. Okay. They are horrible, by the way. <laughs> but they do have a song called Vlad the Impaler, which... Actually, here in a couple of weeks on Musically Challenged, we're, we're talking about Vlad the Impaler. But since this is the episode it is, if people want to hear a really bad song about, you know, uh, a historical vampire, for lack of a better word, go listen to Vlad the Impaler by Kasabian. Okay. So, yes, and today we're going to be talking about vampires. You know, with this being our Halloween episode, and, you know, of course, vampires are one of the most popular monsters out there and there's see the thing is a lot some of what we know when we associate with vampires uh actually is a modern uh innovation or modern designs like when uh see of course bram stoker's dracula is someone that a lot of people are familiar with and also uh, i forgot who wrote it but there was a book that i think it actually predated dracula and that was, I think it was called Varney the Vampire. So, you know, there has, I mean, the vampire is a very popular legend. You would have found it in just about every culture uh, out there. And and that's the thing. I, I, you, I agree with you completely there. But when we talk about modern vampires, when we get to them later on, 1897 is really the year. You yeah. know, that was the year uh, Dracula was what was uh, published and it started us all on this, this modern step into what we think of vampires today. Um, but it started a long time ago. Oh yeah. You know? Cause I mean, you'll find legends of not just necessarily vampires, but vampire like creatures, um, you know, as, as long as there's been recorded history. And I know you said that you had did before we were talking before we started recording, and you had mentioned that you did some research. And I mean, what's the furthest back that you found when discussing? Uh, well, actually, let's before we start talking about vampires and some of the historical ones. I mean, it is clear that it has been a very widespread belief. Uh, again, you find legends of vampire-like creatures in almost every cultures, but archaeologists. Um, will sometimes find graves where the body has been mutilated in ways that are consistent with uh, some of the folklore about how to prevent a vampire from rising. And we'll be certainly be getting that, uh, you know, getting into that uh, later well, on. But And to bring that up, I, I, it's been within the last 10 years or so, they were ex- excavating in England. And they found a burial chamber... And they had buried a man in a iron casket 
they had bound it shut with with chains and when they opened it up it had religious insignia on the inside the the corpse had been staked the head had been cut off and placed between his legs i mean it was serious stuff oh yeah if you if somebody thought you were a vampire now granted the bonus to this in most cases is if somebody accused you of being a vampire you were already dead but it was still the things they did to your corpse i mean it, it it's horrific almost yeah, and some of the other things I've heard as far as folklore on how to prevent a vampire from rising, uh, you mentioned some of them, decapitation, driving a stake through the chest, um, severing the tendons was another one. Below uh, the knees, they couldn't rise, yep. Yep. Another one was actually a bear, putting them face down in the coffin because the belief was that, you know, if the vampire was buried face down, well, when it it reanimated, it would start to try to dig its way out and it's just going to dig into the earth and it's not going to get back to, you know, the surface. Um, another one, which I, I'm wanting to say that it was a way that was believed to deal with vampires, but it may have just may have been some other folklore. Uh, but after you burn the body, scatter the ashes at a crossroad or in some cases even burying the body at a crossroad. And I think the belief was there, well, you've got the shape of the cross, but uh, not only that, the the vampire, when it reanimated, or if the spirit came back, it wouldn't know which way it had to go to find the people that had mutilated and destroyed it. I was actually reading accounts of early American vampires. One of the things they would do is they would exhume the corpse, they would take the heart and then they would burn the heart into a powder. And then anybody who had said that they had been attacked by the vampire in any way, you know, and the reason that they dug him up thinking it was a vampire, they would take that ash from the heart, mix it in water and everybody would drink it. And that was supposed to keep the vampire from coming after you again. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it's amazing. But the thing, the one thing you have to remember about, Almost all of these, almost, you know, once you get out of the ancient traditions, once you get into medieval times and beyond, a lot of a lot of the supposed occurrences of, of vampires and other creatures like that happen in small, you know, backwood uh, type towns. It was never in the the centers of industry or anything like that. It was always, you know, out in the country, you know. And that makes sense. And one of the other th- uh, theories as to why people may have um, developed some of this belief in vampires is, you know, of course, a long time ago, the their understanding of the decaying process of a dead body wasn't perfect. So, um, for example, after the body has started to settle and decompose, sometimes blood might gush out of the mouth or nose. And um, that might cause people, well, if they dug up the, the coffin and opened it and they saw blood around the mouth or the face, that may have led them to believe that it was a vampire that got out and had fed. Um, also, the, because of the gas buildup in a dead body, it starts to bloat a bit. And that might also have made people think that it was a vampire that had just fed. Uh, another... Example is 
you know, there's this urban legend that the hair and the nails continue to grow after you die, when actually what's happening is the skin on the fingers and the head is like receding a little bit. And that, right, because of dehydration. Yep. So that makes the hair and the fingernails look a bit longer than they did in real life. So those are some things that may have led to the, uh, you know, to the development of vampires, at least as when we're, uh, when we're talking about the stereotypical one, the ones that you might see in the old Hammer horror films and as they're portrayed in a lot of, uh, a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, you know, and, and a lot of stuff that have to do with vampires can be, now we can look at it and see it as a function of, you know, after death, what happens after we die. But not always the case. And I, I think at some point in this, we'll talk about modern vampires, uh, which are not traditional vampires, but they still believe in the need of blood to uh, satiate, I don't want to say hunger, but satiate something they're missing. Well, Chad, you did make, you did post that picture on Facebook earlier today that I think, okay, maybe that explained why vampires drink blood. Do you want to explain it? Well, it was a, it was a picture from <laughs> no the 19, 1922 um, mo- silent movie called Nosferatu. And it was a picture of, uh, I want to say his name was like Lord Orloff or something like that. I think Orlock, but yeah, something like that. Yeah. And it was the scene right before the sun comes up and he poofs away in the dust. But uh, it said something like uh, vampires feed on blood because they need their their vitamin D um, and they can't go into the sun. Yeah, they're, they're vitamin D deficient. And and... <laughs> so... <laughs> And, and it's like, you know, so that's just you always thinking about yourself, never worrying about anybody else, you know. Yeah, it's like, did you, ever think, did you ever think the reason vampires drink your blood is because they need the vitamin D? Of course you didn't. It's because you only think of yourself. Yes, yes. But, you know, it's one of those things that it's just, it was humor. I saw it this morning. I knew we were recording tonight, so I, I tagged you in it because I figured you'd get a kick out of it. it I did. It, it, it was fun. So, yeah, drinking blood is definitely one of the characteristics that we see in just about every type of vampire. Um, Some of the other characteristics, as far as their appearance goes, and we tend to see this a bit more and more of the modern mythology behind vampires, while sometimes they can be hideously ugly, other times they can be extremely beautiful or attractive. Um, You know, they have that certain charm and magnetism to them. Right, and that that was played up really well in Anne Rice's uh, interview with the vampire, that series of books. In fact, somewhere in the books, it's not in the movies, but somewhere in the books, it says something to the effect of when you become a vampire, you become the best you. So, you know, it's like you become you become the pinnacle of what you could be. And, of course, they did that by giving us Brad Pitt and and Tom Cruise, which, okay, you know, whatever. But, you know, it was supposed to signify that you were at the height of whatever you were. It didn't matter what you, you know, in there, it didn't matter what you looked like or or because the little girl, when they they changed Claudia, she was this little nasty, dirty, you know, 
wretch of a child, but when they turned her, she became this perfect image of what that child could be. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, there's also probably the most um, accurate depiction of vampires, the ones where their skin gets, you know, they they shine and sparkle in the sunlight. Shut up. Shut up. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Do you really have to ask that, or do you want a list? They they are not vampires. They are some sort of glass golems. I, I don't know what they are, but they're not vampires. Okay, so I, I promise that'll be my that'll be my only my uh, first and last and only reference to Twilight. That would be good because I might have to hang up on you. <laughs> you, you oh no, I just did it. You guys, because we're actually doing this over a webcam right now, and you guys should have seen it. There's these little veins that started to pop up in Chad's head when I no, when I when I started mentioning it. The, I have a problem with Twilight. I have seen a lot of vampire movies over the years, and. And I think one of the biggest problems I have with 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 Twilight is how I got suckered into watching the movie. So I had been gone for work for a week or something like that. And I come home and my, my oldest daughter goes, Dad, you want to watch a movie about vampires and werewolves? And I'm like, I'm in. And then she showed me Twilight. I am so sorry. But that vein was probably, you know, that vein was probably a foot out that day. Yes. <laughs> so, and another one of the uh, characteristics we commonly see with vampires is shape shifting. Um, very common for them to be able to turn into different types of animals, and it wasn't always just bats. Um, you know, usually wolves was another example. Uh, depending on the type of vampire, they could sometimes change into cats or. Uh, dogs or uh, rats. Yep. So yeah, they could turn into a variety of different types of animals. So we, we let's go back to probably near the beginning of recorded history, or as far back as we uh, we could research. What are some of the earliest examples of vampires or vampire-like creatures that you've heard about or you've read about? Okay, so I'm going to start with what I'm calling uh, an area I'm calling ancient traditions. These are things that have been told through through oral histories or through, you know, finding on pottery and things such as that. So the Persians um, depicted creatures attempting to drink blood from men, and these were found on pottery shards. We don't have names for them, but that is probably the earliest recorded history of of that kind of thing. So then we have the Babylonians. So Lilithu gave rise to Lilith and her daughters, Lilu, from Hebrew demonology. Uh, Lilith, Adam's first wife, left Adam to become the queen of the demons. She refused to be Adam's subordinate and was banished from Eden by God himself. To ward off attacks from Lilith's uh, Lilith, parents would hang ambulance around their baby's cradles as Lilith was known to subsist on So that was the Babylonian belief. Um, you get into ancient Greece. Uh, Greek mythology contains precursors to modern vampires. None were considered undead, though. Uh, there's Empusa, uh, I'm sorry, Empusa, Lamia, and Sturges. Ampusa was the daughter of the goddess uh, Hectate. 
and was described as dem- as a demonic, bronze-footed creature. She feasted on blood by transforming into a young woman and seduced men as they slept before drinking their blood. Sounds kind of like a succubus to me. Yeah, and really the... Because uh, I'm glad you brought up Lilith, because that was one of the ones I remember reading about as well, where, uh, you know, the Hebrew belief back then, they weren't believed to be undead, they were just believed to be blood-sucking demons. Right. But, you know, I can certainly see how that uh, gave rise to, you know, this widespread belief that uh, vampires were these blood-drinking creatures. Right, and then to go on with ancient Greece... Uh, Lamia was the daughter of King Belus and a secret lover of Zeus. When Hera found out, she killed all Lamia's offspring. Lamia swore vengeance and preyed on young children in their beds at night, sucking their blood. So, like I said, these aren't these aren't traditional vampires. These are like precursors to. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the Sturges, and they feasted on children and young men. They had bodies like crows or birds in general. Uh, they were later known in Roman mythology as Strix, um, a nocturnal bird that fed on human flesh and blood. So that then brings us into uh, another place that I looked was ancient India. And I was actually kind of surprised to find this, but I found it when I was going through stuff. Um, they have tales of the Vetalas. It's a ghoul-like being that inhabited corpses and uh, found in old Sanskrit folklore. So that's how long ago, I mean, this is where these talked about. We're talking Sanskrit here. Vedalas, um, as described, or is described as an undead creature who, like the bat associated with modern-day vampirism, hangs upside down on trees found in cremation grounds and cemeteries. And then uh, the uh, Pish, Pish, Pishacha? Sorry if I'm killing that. The, yeah, we uh, probably they, should have given the we probably should have given the pronunciation disclaimer before we started. I have yeah. a feeling that when we you know talk about some of these foreign words, we're we are probably not pronouncing them correctly. <laughs> right. So they were the returned spirits of evildoers or those who died insane, and they also bear vampiric attributes. Um. So that kind of that was kind of what I found on India. So. I mean, we've we've done we've done you know the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greece, the ancient India. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about Jewish traditions. Okay, so the Hebrew word aluka, transfer are uh, translated directly as leech, is synonymous with vampirism or vampires, as is motez. Dom or bloodsucker. Later vampire traditions appear among diaspora Jews in Central Europe, in particular the medieval interpretation of Lilith, which is a little bit more like the interpretation of Lilith in D and D. And I wouldn't even go. I mean, it it also falls along the lines of uh, in Vampire the Masquerade. Um, Have you ever? Did you ever play Vampire the Masquerade, or have you gotten? Yep. Um, did you ever read the Book of Nod? I actually have a copy downstairs somewhere. So, it yeah. is actually a really good book, even if you you don't play it. Um, it's because it goes into Cain's backstory and it talks right. about uh, you know how he married, you know how he became 
uh, the first vampire. Uh, it talks about his encounter with Lilith and, um, you know, it goes into some of his history. So I definitely recommend it, even if you're not, like I said, even if you're not a vampire, the masquerade player, it's still a, it's still a fun book to read. And it's not that big either. I mean, it's only, I think, like a hundred no, or so pages long. I don't think it's even that many, but yeah, it's, could be. it's, it's not a big book. It's, I would say maybe it's about as thick as, um, if you remember the complete, uh, handbook series from second edition D and D it's probably about as thick as those books, but it's only about half the size. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, not exactly a lar- um, not exactly a long book, but still very entertaining to read. And then another Jewish story depicts vampires in a more traditional way. In the kiss of death, the daughter of the demon king, Ashmodai, uh, snatches the breath of a man who has betrayed her, strongly reminiscent of a fatal kiss of a vampire. So those were the ones I looked at for, you know, ancient traditions. Now, there's, I mean, we are by no means covering everything. There are so many traditions and so many stories out there that what you and I cover tonight is just going to be the surface. Yeah, we're just scratching the surface. And um, I actually have a few Asian vampires that um, I've read about because uh, listeners to the show, you know that I've done my historical gaming episodes where I'll talk about some of the cultures that haven't really been explored in second edition or usually they haven't really been explored in most versions of D&D. And one of the things I always do when I research my historical gaming episodes is I try to look up uh, different types of monsters. Because if you think about it, uh, the writers of Dungeons & Dragons have actually brought in monsters from a lot of different mythologies. You know, we find... You know, we find monsters from Asia. We find monsters from European folklore. Uh, we find uh, monsters from, uh, you know, some other Asian cultures. Uh, so, like I said, just about every type of culture, you'll probably find at least one monster in there. In, in from or Dungeons and Dragons has probably taken at least one monster from that culture. Um, so, mm-hmm. one of them that I remember reading about, and this is a Japanese. Uh, vampire-like creature. Uh, it's called the Nuki Kubi. And again, I may have, I probably did not pronounce that correctly, but it's a head that separates from the body, flies around, and uh, looking for people to, to drink their blood. Um, the Some other interesting ones. In China, they tell tor- stories about uh, the... Jiang Shi, and the tradition here is that ideally when you died, you wanted to be buried in your hometown, but if you couldn't afford to pay someone to take a, you know, to take your body from where you died back home on a cart, there was a type of magician or wizard that you could hire, and what they would do is they would uh, reanimate the corpse and lead it back to the hometown. And of course, they would only travel at night, so they wouldn't draw a lot of attention to themselves. Um, so but the people who paid them didn't realize they just threw them in a cart and kept going. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> um, sometimes, though, the because normally they're not, they don't have independent thought, but they could still attack people 
to suck out their key or their, you know, their chi, their life essence. Right. They were believed to be have greenish furry skin, and this is probably because sometimes mold might grow on a corpse. And again, they had the long nails, which we talked about before. Another type of Asian vampire, and this one is from Indonesia, and it is um, actually uh, very similar to the uh, the Nuki Kubi, and it's called a liak. And this also resembles a human head, but it has its entrails and its organs dripping below it, or, you know, uh, hanging from the bottom of the head. Uh, there's a horror movie called Mystics in Bali, and that type of creature, they, um, you know, it plays a role in that, uh, that movie. The Angry Video Game Nerd did a brief review on it, and the film is in public domain, so you could probably find it on YouTube. But um, what this type of vampire would do is it would, it was often blamed for unexpected deaths especially involving newborns. It was said that they would use their long tongues to attack pregnant women and suck blood from the fetus. However, it was said you could defend yourself by planting bushes or trees with sharp thorns around your house. And the reason that you would do this is the creature would be afraid of getting its organs caught on the thorns. Okay. Um, There's a couple vampire-like creatures from the Philippines. Uh, the first one is the Aswang. And this is one that likes to feed on newborn babies and fetuses. So again, we're seeing a, tr- a trend here where, and, and you mentioned it too with like Lilith, how, what was the other one? Lamisa? Uh, or Lamia? Uh, yeah. Where, Lamia, Lamia or you, you press a. Yeah. Um, so these are, again, the, we're, we're seeing a trend here where uh, vampires are believed to be responsible for miscarriages and stillborn babies or babies that uh, would die soon after birth. Now, in Aswang, um, they look like normal people, but they would often have bloodshot eyes because they were, they'd spent all night looking for their victims. Now, one Not thing. What's that? I said not drinking. <laughs> no, not from drinking, from uh, looking at looking for victims. But it was said, though, that it is possible to actually befriend an Aswang. And this would actually be to your benefit because an Aswang would not attack its friends or neighbors. And there's, a, there's actually a Filipino saying, better an Aswang than a thief. Because if there's an, a thief living next door... You don't, you know, you know he could probably steal from you, but an Aswang would not, you know, it wouldn't hurt its neighbors. Another type of vampire from the Philippines, um, Mana, okay, okay, like I said, I'm going to be mangling this pronunciation, but um, Manangal, and this type of vampire would separate from the waist, and it would its upper torso would fly around to uh, find victims. Like the Aswang, its preferred target was pregnant women and newborns. The only way to defeat it is you had to find the lower torso and then put either salt, 
ash or garlic on it because that would prevent the torso from coming back together and then it, it would die at sunrise. Now one interesting note about these Filipino vampires, both of them can be repelled using a weapon called the buntat pagi, which is a whip made from this uh, tail of a stingray. Now a final vampire that I was reading about, uh, this one is actually Scandinavian. It's called a draugr. It was said to be the reanimated corpse of someone who is either exceptionally evil or exceptionally greedy. Other times it was a person who came back to you know this undead status because they had unfinished business that they wanted to uh, take care of. Now it was said that these this type of vampire-like creature, um, it didn't have to bite you to make turn you into a draugr. All it had to do was kill you. Uh, there's one story about a shepherd that was it had its neck his neck broken, and then he came back as one of these creatures as well. It was they usually existed to guard over the treasures they had accumulated in life or torment the living. Some of their powers superhuman strength. Um, it was said they could cause darkness during the daylight. They could cause disease. They could curse their victims. They could shape change into different types of animals, control the weather, and they could also move through the earth. It was also said that they were impervious to most weapons. And some weapons might be able, like, I think they do mention silver weapons or iron, I forgot which, but they could wound it, but it usually couldn't kill it. Only an exceptionally brave or strong hero could possibly kill this creature. And I was said that one way you might have to kill them is you'd have to wrestle them back into their coffin. Um, and if they also had the belief that another way you could destroy them was by uh, cremating them and then throwing their remains out to sea. Okay. So those are some... Uh, Hopefully we gave you some good ideas, and I know we're going to talk about gaming a little bit later, but it um, might be kind of fun to throw these types of vampires at your players, because if you stick a, stick a standard vampire on them, chances are your players are going to know how to deal with it. But, you know, they might not know how to, while that vampire that, uh, you know, that's separated at the torso, they might not know how to defeat that type of creature. Oh, wait, there's one other one that I remember. I forgot the name, but it's a Polynesian-type vampire where it look, it's a, looks like a woman with an insane look on her face. However, her neck could stretch out, and it was said that she also preferred to attack pregnant women and newborn infants. So those are some examples of ancient vampires. So let's start moving into what modern moviegoers and horror fans would associate with vampires today. And you mentioned that 1827 is around the time when a lot of our modern ideas of the vampire began to take shape. 1897. 1897. Okay. I'm gonna start. I'm not gonna quite get that far yet here. Actually, okay. I'm gonna start with what are considered the first two modern vampires um, that have actual documentation behind them. 
So the, the panic began with an outbreak of alleged vampire attacks in East Prussia, which was once a part of Germany, in 1721, and in the Habsburg monarchy, which was part of the, Ro the Holy Roman Empire, from 1725 to 1734, which spread to other localities. Two famous vampire cases, which were the first to be officially recorded, involved the corpses of Peter Blagojevich and Arnold Pale from Serbia. Blagojevich was re reported to have died at the age of 62, but allegedly returned after his death asking his son for food. When the son refused, he was found dead the following day. Blagojevich soon supposedly returned and attacked some neighbors who died from loss of blood. In the second case, Arnold Paoli, an ex-soldier uh, turned farmer who allegedly was attacked by a vampire years before, died while haying. After his death, people began to die in the surrounding area, and it was widely believed that Paol had returned to prey on the neighbors. These cases were government-documented, government-examined corpses, case reports written, and books published. The hysteria, which is commonly referred to as the 18th century, century vampire controversy, raged for a generation. Now, these two poor guys, they were dug up and they were taken care of in the, in the classic way we, we think of. They were staked. They were beheaded. And it was said that if you, shove, if you took garlic and filled the mouth of the, behe the beheaded mouth with garlic, placed the, the head between the legs... For some reason, they, the vampire would not be able to regain his head and, and put it back on. I don't know what the idea behind that was, but that's what happened to both of these guys. But here was something really interesting I found when I was researching this. So in his philosophical dictionary, Voltaire, yes, that Voltaire, wrote the following... These vampires were corpses who went out of their graves at night to suck the blood of the living, either at their throats or stomachs, after which they returned to their cemeteries. The person so sucked waned, grew pale, and fell into consumption, while the sucking corpse grew fat, got rosy, and enjoyed an excellent appetite. It was in Poland, Hungary, uh, Cilicia, uh, Morovia, Austria and Lorraine, that the dead made this good cheer. Now, granted, it's, it doesn't sound quite right because Voltaire wrote in French and probably doesn't translate the best. But, I mean, for somebody like Voltaire, someone who's looked at as a, as a you know, a uh, intellectual of the time, to have this belief, you know, to write this is interesting. So I want to talk about three different areas in Europe. I'm going to start with Albania. Shatrigia come from Albanian mythology. It is a vampire witch. It is a vampire witch in traditional Albanian folklore that sucks the blood of infants at night while they sleep and tur then turns into a flying insect. Only the Shatriga can cure those they had drained. It's a little different than standard vampire legend because usually killing the vampire will heal or correct the problem. Uh, I'm going to jump to Greece. So Ry Rykolakos, 
and I'm sure that's not right. Uh, it's a Slavic word meaning werewolf, but it has much in common with the European vampire. Belief in vampires persisted through Greek history and became so widespread in the 18th and 19th century that many practiced many practices were enforced to prevent and combat vampirism. After the deceased were or often the deceased were exhumed after three years, moved by family to a box, wine poured over them, and a priest would read scriptures. If the if they had not decayed enough, they were labeled vrykolakos and dealt with appropriately. So how would you like that one? How I mean, I mean let's let, let's just break that down. After somebody's dead three years, you got to dig them up. It's just the law. You dig them up. You have to see how badly they have decomposed. If they've decomposed enough, you throw them in a box. You pour some wine on them. You say some prayers. And it doesn't say that you rebury them, but I would assume they would be reburied at that point. And then, of course, the last one um, that I wanted to touch on was the Romanian history of vampires. And, of course, you know, when you think Romania, you think Vlad the Impaler. You think Count Dracula because he was in Transylvania as well, which is in Romania. So it says vampires were known as Moroi and uh, Strigoi, with the latter classified as either living or dead. Live Strigoi were described as living witches with two hearts or two souls, sometimes both. Strigoi were said to have the ability to send their souls at night to meet with other Strigoi and consume the blood of livestock and neighbors. Similarly, dead Strigoi were described as reanimated corpses that also sucked blood and attacked their living family. So you might ask yourself, Al, how do I become a Strigoi? I don't know. How do I become a Strigoi? I have a list here, actually. You can be born with a cowl, an extra nipple, a tail, or extra hair. Yeah, actually, I actually think I remember there was one folk tale that if a child was born on with teeth, well, no, that was, um, I think if they, if they were born with teeth, it would believe that, uh, they would become a werewolf. And, um, I think even they say that if, uh, or there's some folklore that says if a werewolf isn't disposed of properly, it could also return as a vampire. Okay. You could also be the seventh child in any family. If the first six were the same sex, um, be born premature. If a black cat crossed a pregnant lady's path, the child could become a Shigoi. If a pregnant woman didn't eat salt, if a pregnant woman was looked upon by a witch or a vampire, a child born out of wedlock, or if you died of an unnatural, if you died a non-natural death or before baptism. And my personal favorite is if you were born a person with red hair and blue eyes, you were damned to become a Strigoi. <laughs> and I think that uh, I was reading somewhere that um, I don't know if it was remote, remote, blah, 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 Romania or somewhere else in Eastern Europe, but um, another belief is that people who had defied the uh, Russian Orthodox Church, that they would also become vampires after they died. Okay. So with uh, along with Romanian vampires, they were said to bite their victims over the heart or between the eyes, and sudden death could indicate the presence of a vampire. So, you know, Romania is is linked in modern vampirism. 
like I said, Vlad the Impaler, you know, Vlad Dracul. You've got um, Count Dracula, who, depending on how you run the lines together, might be the same guy. Um, yeah, because I know... Um, that, that's think- what Stoker did. He, yeah. that, that was what he hinted at. So, Yeah, and as I recall, um, I believe with, because uh, Vlad Sapesh, um, who would be the, his, you know, Vlad the Impaler. Right. Um, now, the his ties to Dracula is that I believe his uh, name meant something to the effect of Son of the Devil or Son of the Dragon. Correct. And now, as far as whether he actually drank blood or not, that I understand is still up in the air. Um, there's there's not any real concrete evidence if he actually drank blood or not. Right. I, what is commonly said historically is that Vlad Tepish would sit and take dinner amongst the corpses yeah. that had been impaled. And I think that's where the whole idea that he drank blood came from. But there is nothing historically that tells you whether or not he drank blood. You know, it's not like Elizabeth Bathory where, you know, it, it's been written over and over and over that she would drink the blood of virgins to retain her youth. I thought she as bathed. Well. Not- it, she would drink it as well. Okay. Yeah, the uh, the other thing about, uh, about Vlad, though, you know, it's interesting. We tend to picture him as being, a, you know, evil and a villain. But for the most part, he was actually a hero to his people because... He still is. Yeah, because he defended them against the Turks. And it was said that he had, he definitely, as far as alignment goes, would have been lawful evil. He believed in very strict punishments. Um, There's this one story I remember reading about. A traveling merchant had reported to him that a bag of, I don't remember the name of the, the currency, but 50 coins had been stolen from him. So, you know, Vlad said, okay, we'll catch the thief. And uh, while they were investigating it, he had one of his servants put a bag of coins back on the, uh, you know, back in the merchant's cart and said, here, we found it. And while the merchant counted it, he said, I think there's a mistake. There's 51 coins in here, uh, not 50. And then the eventually they caught the thief and they impaled him. And Vlad told him that he intentionally put that bag of, you know, 51 coins in his cart. And he said, if you had lied to me and told me that was yours, you would be up there on the uh, being impaled along with the thief. Um, There was another story where he was entertaining some um, emissaries from the Turkish Empire and they refused to remove their turbans in his presence. So he had them nailed to their heads. So yeah, he was he was not the kind of guy you wanted to get mad. Yeah, one of, one of, one of the stories that always struck me as truly an evil act from this man was he did not he did not think that people that were handicapped um, in any way deserved to live. So in order to rid his area of the world of it, he invited everybody in his kingdom that he knew of that was handicapped, whether it was mental or physical or whatever. And they built this palisade where they had this big party and they had this entire party. And I mean, you know, just 
threw food and everything at these people. And towards the end of the party, him and all those people got up, they walked out, they shut the doors, and they burned the place to the ground, killing them all. Yep, I remember hearing about that as well. And that is just like, holy, forgive my language here, but holy shit. Yeah, he... (laughs) Like I said, he was not the kind of person you wanted to be on his bad side. Um, Did you have you ever heard the number of people that he impaled at one time? His largest number. I probably have heard it, but I don't remember it offhand. Twenty thousand Turks. Wow. At one time, could you just? I mean, just think of the killing field. It had to be gigantic. Oh yeah, but he did that. And then, like, one of the Turkish kings was bringing in a raid, and he knew this was happening and why he took all his prisoner Turks and did this to them. They rode up the out of the valley that came into where his castle was, and all they saw was this fields of impaled Turks, and they went home. <laughs> yeah, because, and I mean, talk about impalement. That's got to be one of the worst ways to die because, you know, they shove this, you know, blunted, you know, stick up your... But, and, you know, the thing, well, I've heard there's a couple different ways they do it, but it's intended to take a long time um, because it might take, you know, a while for you to, because this, you know, this pole would slide up your, you know, your backside and along your spine. And since it was the way, what they intended is that it wouldn't hit any vital organs. Right. If they they did it correctly, yeah, it would come out your shoulder. So, yeah, you could sit there for quite some time in agony until you finally died. Yep. Yeah, it could take up to days. There, there, are, there are, you know, accounts because that was one thing about Vlad Tepish, if nothing else, is he was very he, – he documented everything because he was always looking for a better way to do things. So there were, there were times that people would be impaled and it would take days for them to die. And it was just supposed to be the most painful, excruciating way to die on top of it. Yeah. So, so not a nice guy. Not, do what do you he think? Was, <laughs> but he was a hero to the people of, you know, uh, Wallachia, which is what the what it was called at, in his time, and which now is modern-day Romania. But it was because, you know, as a Catholic, they, they kept the Turks and, and the um, – Islam or what religion? Yeah, Islam Muslims, yes. from taking over the area. So that's why he's considered a hero. So yeah, I mean, you make a good point. They considered him, despite all his, you know, viciousness and brutality. They still supported him because of the fact that he was protecting them from the the, the Turks. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So so, where do you want to go next with this? I'm I'm kind of out of my historical stuff. Okay. Well, let's start moving into some of the modern stuff we see about vampires. Now, we've talked about there's ways to prevent a vampire from rising. But right. also fiction has given us, and also history to some extent, there are some things that are said to be uh, protection against vampires. Now, one of the things that I've, you hear about a lot is garlic and roses. For some reason, the scent of these items keeps the keeps the vampire away. Uh, also mirrors, um, because the, the belief is that since a vampire has no soul, it's not going to give a reflection or it's not going to cast a shadow though. That belief is actually not universal. Um, there are, you know, some types of vampires were believed to, 
you know, be able to cast a shadow or uh, give a reflection in a mirror. Now, no, no. there there isn't really anything modernized that hasn't been tweaked in some way. Yeah, and, uh, you know, um, I'm going to bring up that 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 horrible thing, Twilight. Vampires could move about during the day. They had to avoid the sun because they would sparkle, but they could move about during the day. Yep, and Dracula um, in Bram Stoker's novel, and th- this also applies to some other types of vampires, yeah, he, Dracula could go out in the daylight, but most of his powers were gone. Right. Now, and if you want to talk gaming, just for a second here, you go into World of Darkness or into Vampire the Masquerade, mm-hmm. there were certain clans that could move about during the day. Again, they had the lack of powers, but they could move about during the day. Yeah, and the because I I've read the Vampire the Masquerade. I think it was the second edition where uh, yeah they were saying when you went out into the sunlight it wouldn't kill you right away. You know it would take you know you'd lose um, you know a certain amount of you know you take a certain amount of damage each round until you until you died. Now right one the next thing I'd like to talk about is interesting because there's several interpretations from it. Now, one of the things that we know from fiction that will keep a vampire away is a cross or a holy symbol. Now, this has been played with several ways in fiction. For example, in the original story for um, I Am Legend, um, the protagonist in that one uh, notices that uh, garlic and holy symbols, he find out, the reason that they kept these vampire-like creatures away is because when these people were alive, they were taught to believe that they would keep vampires away. So that, therefore, when they became vampires, they were afraid of it just because they were told vampires are kept away by, by crosses and such. Um, when in actuality, it didn't. He just, it was just more or less a, a temporary form of protection. But here's another interesting. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say um, there's a there's a couple of things that I've read over the years that that play with that too. Um, Stephen King's uh, novel uh, Salem's Lot talks about that about how you know the priest pulls out a cross or crucifix and he holds it out to the vampire and the vampire pretty much laughs at him and he says it's not the cross it's not the cross that keeps me away it's your belief in God and. And, you know, this this priest was having his, you know, doubt, doubt and this and that and the next thing. So the vampire just kind of, you know, knocked the cross away and killed the priest. But, you know, made that statement that it's not the cross. The cross doesn't mean anything. It's the belief behind the cross. Okay. And that's interesting because, again, back in I Am Legend, uh, he – the guy discovered that a cross, though, would only work against a vampire who was a Christian in life. Um, so if you were to hold that to, up to someone who was a, who was Jewish or, or Muslim, they didn't have the same fear of that symbol. But now when you talk about the faith, uh, Vampire the Masquerade also worked with that as well. They said in there that holy symbols only work if the person has a virtue called true faith, which is very rare. Um, in the intro text of the book, there's a story that's talking to someone there's a vampire that's talking to someone who is about to be turned and is explaining the whole, you know, va- world of vampires. And he said, it, I like this, he says in it, 
Nine times out of ten, you can walk up to a priest, snatch the cross from his hands, and kill him while he asks God what went wrong. Not that I've done that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) And it also said, though, that, um, however, if someone did have true faith, then the religion of the person and the religion of the vampire didn't matter. So a vampire could easily be repelled by someone doing Buddhist chants or uh, holding up a star of David or, you know, as long as they have the faith, the person's Mm -hmm. religion doesn't matter. And um, there was actually a crossover in the X-Men series. And this probably was in like the late seventies, early eighties. Um, where the X-Men were fighting against Dracula. And I remember reading this one panel where Wolverine tried to make a cross. You know, he took out, you know, one claw in each hand and put him together to try to make a cross. And Dracula then struck him down with lightning and laughed, and he was saying that the cross only works if the person believes it would work. And since Wolverine was implied to be an atheist... Um, it wouldn't have worked. Whereas, I mean, I know Nightcrawler, because uh, I think religiously they don't really get into the religious beliefs of most of the X-Men, um, right. but I do know they always did have it where um, Nightcrawler was a Catholic. Uh, right. So he could have used a cross to repel um, Dracula, but Wolverine couldn't. Yeah, and, and then another another way that this has been played with is, have you read any of the Anne Rice novels, the Interview with the Vampire series? I haven't read the books. I've seen Interview with the Vampire, and I have seen part of uh, the second Queen one they the made, Damned. Lachette. Queen of the Damned. That was a horrible, horrible movie they should have <laughs> never done. But anyway, in the, in the books, in the first book when um, they're interviewing Louie, and he's telling the story, the... the um, the um, reporter asks him, you know, he asks him about all these different things, garlic, holy water, all this stuff. And and then he goes, what about crucifixes? And Louis says, I'm rather fond of them, actually. Sometimes I sit in church for hours just looking at them. Yeah, I remember that from the movie. So <laughs> Yeah, he talked about it in the movie, too. But it's like, you know, she went to the complete opposite and said, you know, iconically, they don't mean anything. So... Are you of the the mindset that if a religious symbol is going to work against a vampire, so are you more of the mindset that it's the the faith of the person that is going to keep the vampire away, or is it actually the the deity that is going to keep the vampire away? Well, I think you hit it on on both things there. I think it's the faith of the person. I think there has to be something behind it because. I can have, you know, I can hold up anything and say, you know, the power of Christ compels you with my pint jar. (laughs) If the pint jar doesn't matter, it's what's coming from me. Do I believe that the power of Christ compels you? You know, that's one thing. I hold up my Um, iPhone. The power of Job's compels you. The power of Job. Okay, sorry. No. (laughs) Uh, You know, but you know, you know what I'm saying? It's, there's got to be something behind it. Now, intervention from a god in in gaming terms maybe maybe you know if you're a, if you're a follower but then again if you're a follower and your personal faith doesn't do it 
Are you going to be high enough on the deity's list for him to go, oh, Bob's in trouble. Yeah. Well, yep. you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a catch-22, but I think either one would work. But I don't think it's the item. I think there has to be something greater than just the item. Yeah, and another interesting uh, weakness I've heard is that vampires are believed to have a weakness for counting things. And we see this in like European folklore, where if you thought of a vampire was in your neighborhood, you wanted to scatter seeds over the roof of your house, because the belief was that the vampire would be forced to stop and count the seeds until sunrise. And in Chinese folklore, uh, it's believed that if a vampire came across a bucket or a sack full of rice, it would be compelled to uh, to count them. So again, the, the the, the hope is that this would either keep the vampire occupied long enough for the sun to rise or at least long enough for you to get away. Now, uh, there's a couple other ones that I'm not sure where these came from, but supposedly vampires can't cross running water. Um, they can only enter a house if they're invited and also not being able to enter holy ground. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, these are all things that have been used, but not, again, not universally. It depends on the legend that, that, that you're following. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to go really modern here. Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, or Angel. Angel could not go into Buffy's house until she invited him. But in that series as well, she could just uninvite him just as easily. So if he wasn't in the house and when he would become bad angel, she'd just be like, meet him at the door and be like, you're not welcome. And then he couldn't come in anymore. You know, um, and lost boys had, um, I remember there was a scene in there where they played with that, where the, they invited the, the, they didn't, you know, the, the suspected vampire into the house and they gave him a lot of garlic in his food and it wasn't working. And he explained later on that, well, once you remove, you invite a vampire into your house, any weakness, you know, garlic no longer works on him. So um, another interesting thing, and this is go back to I Am Legend, uh, maybe another explanation why my, we can have for why certain things might not work against vampires. In I Am Legend, they describe vampirism as being a genetic mutation as opposed to being anything related to, you know, evil or witchcraft or anything magical or supernatural. Right, yeah. Again, it comes down to which legend are you following. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, traditionally, it's it's passed on from, you know, from whoever to whoever whether it's through a bite, whether it's through some sort of psychic ability. Uh, you know, that's one thing we haven't talked about yet is psychic vampires. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, I'm, I'm familiar with those. And, yeah, those are pe- – for those who haven't heard the term, a uh, psychic vampire, at least in real life, is usually described as someone who drains you mentally or emotionally. So if you hang around someone who's always negative, you know, that negativity rubs off on you and – they call them psychic vampires, which right. nothing like the vampires that you know we see in fiction, but it is something that some people say is a real phenomenon. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, whether or not I'm not a big I'm not a big believer in psychic vampirism. Um, 
But as long as we're talking about this kind of new agey stuff, let's talk about modern vampires. When I say modern vampires, I'm talking about the supposed 800 and some odd people in the United States that consider themselves vampires. They need to, at least mentally, they need to partake of blood, either on a daily or a weekly or a monthly basis, depending on, depending on how badly they need it. Um, they don't go in the sun because they have certain um, disabilities that they, they either burn easy or the sun hurts their eyes or, you know, all these different things. And I kind of get the idea of where they're coming, that they're quote-unquote vampires. But to me, this is more of a a mental problem than a, a physical need or a physical desire. I mean, and most of these people are not, they're not violent, most of them. They get their blood through either donors or, you know, animals or, or whatever. And though I find it sort of kind of reprehensible that you think you need to drink blood in order to survive, you know, it's, it's a mental disorder. uh, In my opinion, I'm not trying to say anything bad about these people other than to me, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And when I used to watch, there was a paranormal investigation show I used to watch called sightings. And I think I used to watch that one. Yeah. And, before they turned into everything being about UFOs, uh, they did have, I think they did talk about those real life vampires where, uh, again, they're people who, yeah, they, they, they're more into like the look and they, some of them, yeah, they don't do the blood drinking. You know, they just, they like dressing up like vampires and some of them like sleeping in coffins because they find it more comfortable. Now, when we talk about, vampires in other forms of media. I mean, one thing that always go, comes to my mind is the Castlevania series. Uh, longtime listeners to the show, you know I'm a big Castlevania fan. Uh, it's one of my favorite video game series. Um, also, so that, what'd that's... What's that? What do you think of the Castlevania cartoon? Oh, on Netflix. Um, we're actually going to yeah. do an episode on that, but we never uh, <laughs> never got around to doing it. But in short, since I still would like to do that sometime, honestly, I like it. I did like the four. I don't think they've released any more episodes yet. Not that I've seen, no. They just had the, like, the first four episodes. And I did like it. Um, and one of the things I did like is how they had Trevor Belmont using both the whip and the sword. Because in a, in the depictions of these characters during the 8-bit era, they usually did have either a sword or a long dagger on them, but they usually didn't use it in the game. I mean, there were throwing dagger weapons, but they never actually used it as a melee weapon. Um, mm-hmm. But honestly, I do like it. I, I did like it. I thought it... I w- I'm a big fan of Castlevania III. Um, I thought that it was... While it doesn't follow the game exactly so far and does do a lot of deviation, I still think it remains true to the source material. And I, I mentioned this before when I uh, did a, just a short little episode about it. I, I hope they do go further with it because there's so much, there's so many characters in the Castlevania mythos that I think that they could 
use this as an opportunity to develop stories about characters that were not that didn't get their fair they didn't get their time in the spotlight if if you understand what I'm saying there if you know what I mean yeah yeah absolutely I mean I played Castlevania back when it was a stand-up machine I didn't really get into the backstory behind it I just went around and killed a bunch of bats <laughs> kind of thing you know but I did really enjoy this and now I'll be honest I'm not a big cartoon guy you know, I don't I don't watch a lot of animated things. There are some that I watch, um, but I thought it was really well done. I thought the story was really easy to follow. I thought um, some of the little side stories. I hope they come back around to be part of the main story again. But I just. I was really, I really got into it, and then, and then I, now I've been waiting for more episodes, and they're never coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope I, I haven't had a chance to look it up. I'll have to check, uh, you know, the Wikipedia or something, and see if they are if they are planning on making more episodes. But you know, this brings us to another type of character that's been popularized in um, in pop culture: the vampire hunter. Uh, not in addition to the Belmonts and the other characters in the Castlevania series. Another one that I always go to is Vampire Hunter D. It's the, and that takes an interesting twist on the vampire mythos where the main character who is just known as D, he's the son of Count Dracula. And well, the vampire that he was fighting in, in the movie saw humans as little more than just livestock he was saying that, you know, your ancestor, Dracula, never believed that. So I think they were trying to show a side of Dracula that's usually not, that's usually not um, explored in most, most works of fiction. Yeah. Okay, so I looked it up here quick. There is going to be a season two. Cool. Um, it is going to be eight episodes instead of four. Nice. But they don't they don't have an actual release date yet. Bummer. But it will be 2018 at some point. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that they are making more episodes and I said I am looking forward to see where they go with the series. Right. So, right. so back to the Vampire Hunters. Yes. So you thought you were telling me that before we recorded that there are people that are real, quote unquote, vampire hunters and I know of course we can look back to the historical models where you know, people who, you know, were investigating suspected vampire activity. Yeah. And, you know, this one is actually, I went out there and I went to Google and I typed in real vampire hunters and I got a ton of hits. But when you start going to it, it's like, are they real? Because you kind of read them and they almost read like they're not real. Mm-hmm. And then they read, like, but they're trying to convince you they're real. So what I really did is I found a, um, a Balkan vampire legend. Uh, so the Balkans are Eastern Europe somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where the Balkans are, but the Balkan states. It's called the, uh, the Dompir, okay? It is a baby of a vampire and a human, yep. almost like, always a man. Like Alucard from <laughs> Castlevania. Yep, he is believed to be a very powerful, real vampire hunter. And what came to my mind was Blade from the Blade movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you know you met a, demo- 
uh, down pure. Well, they're going to have long, dark hair, usually unkempt, large eyes, nose, and ears, pale skin, no shadows or reflections like a vampire, soft bones for increased flexibility, superhuman strength, the ability to sense a vampire in the vicinity, and a desire to kill vampires. I don't think I've ever met one of these. Have you? I cannot say I have. <laughs> now, the next thing I'm going to read here, I, I did, and I thought it was hilarious because somebody, the L.A. Oh, I forget what the name of the the, the but somebody wrote into a there was there was a reporter doing an episode or doing a piece on story. vampires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a story on vampires. And somebody wrote in saying they were a true vampire hunter and that, and these are the seven rules of a true vampire hunter. So here we go. The seven rules of vampire hunting. One, you cannot kill a vampire. It is already dead. You can only destroy it. Rule number two, an annoyed vampire is a dangerous vampire. (laughs) Rule number three. Guns kind of, uh, guns tend to annoy vampires. See rule number two. Number four, real vampires are evil. Rule number five, if you are seduced by a vampire, you will become one or become dead. See rule number four. Six, kill them all. This one really counts. And rule number seven, when in doubt and all other times, Execute rule number six. <laughs> Ta-da! Yep, so... I'm like, you know, that sounds like something right out of a video game, a, a gaming table, you know, something like that. What really scares me is, is there some guy out there who thinks he's a vampire hunter and he's just a serial killer? That would be interesting, but kind of scary to think about it. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I'm... Because, you know, back during the Satanic Panic, sometimes people would use the D&D defense for their crimes, saying right. that, um, you know, they're playing Dungeons and Dragons is what made them uh, kill that gas station attendant. But, I, I, you know, I don't think I've ever heard of anything where someone said, yeah, I killed that, you know, that, that uh, you know, cashier because he was actually a vampire, Right, I've never heard that defense, which makes me, which tends to bring me back around to that somebody's, somebody's having a having a go at being funny, yeah, in a, in a really kind of disturbing way, yeah. <laughs> or we're gonna find out at someday there's a serial killer in L.A. that's been killing vampires for twenty years, you know. Or would it be really <laughs> scary if we found out they were right? Yeah. Kind of like going back to what we were talking about with conspiracy theories a couple episodes ago where, you know, that could be the fun thing about working a conspiracy theory into your campaign because what if the conspiracy theory is actually right and that person down the street who's claiming that, you know, aliens are controlling the government, he is actually correct. He's not just some lunatic. Well, you know, and and on YouTube there is a series of shows – um, that say, you know, conspiracy theories that are actually true. And they go, and each episode has two or three conspiracy theories that for years were thought conspiracies. We now find out really happened. Yep. <laughs> well, maybe not to the extent that the conspiracy thought it happened, but it really happened. Yep. So 
Well, I think that uh, we can probably bring this episode to a close here as uh, we've talked about a lot about a little bit about vampires and gaming, but hopefully we've given some good ideas for use in your campaign. And this could be fun because, as I was saying before, if uh, you're, you throw a vampire from the monster manual at your players, just a standard vampire, okay, cut off their heads, drive a stake through the heart, but what if you throw one of these other types of vampires at them? They might not know how to, you know, actually destroy that type of creature. Absolutely. So I'd like to thank you all for tuning in and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy Halloween. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.